Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Connors. Dr. Connors focuses on finding natural and alternative health treatments to significant diseases like cancer and Lyme disease. Dr. Connors, thanks for being on the show with me today. You bet, Aaron. So, Dr. Connors, uh, the way I found you is I've been doing a lot of research on cancer. I've been researching alternative treatments to cancer, um, trying to figure out what's real, what's not. And I came across your clinic um, mostly because your clinic is near me. You work out of a, a treatment center in Lake Elmo, Minnesota. And I downloaded your book, and there's a ton of different stuff in there regarding cancer. But before we get to that, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in medicine and cancer in the first place? Well, I graduated as a chiropractor back in 1986, so a long time ago, probably before you were born. And um, I was always interested in natural care. Um, well, really, it really began when I started seeing a chiropractor, kinesiologist, acupuncturist when I was in junior high and then high school. I was active in sports and um course you hurt yourself so my parents you know believed in a natural approach to care I'm very thankful for my mother she was one of the founding people in our local food co-op that's um, still going very strong today um, so she taught us at a very young age we were kind of eating granola and raw nuts um, when I was fairly young. So she was kind of cutting edge that um, uh, of just trying to take care of yourself natural and trying to stay off of drugs as much as possible. Not necessarily anti-medicine, but trying to be proactive in taking care of yourself. So going down this approach, when I desired to help people and be in the pra in a practice of medicine was an easy decision for me. So um I did not graduate thinking I was going to end up having a cancer practice, but I did graduate um, really practicing what is called functional medicine today. We didn't use that terminology back then, but I, I did a lot of kinesiology, saw people with, um, you know, um, hormonal issues and digestive issues and not, not, quite as much chiropractic type things, um, but a lot of um, uh, gut issues and dealing with that. So it, my practice ended up gra uh, gravitating towards cancer when uh, in studying what I was studying with kinesiology and acupuncture, um, I was very big into nutrition and herbology. And one of the things I studied while I was in school was a man named Royal Rife and his work with frequencies. So I was always intrigued by frequency medicine and um, uh, thought I'd love to incorporate that into my practice at some point in time. Um, to the point I was drawn to it and I had picked out the Rife machine that I wanted. Um, and it wasn't until um, in the late 90s, when a pa one of my patients came to me and told me she had breast cancer bilaterally in both breasts, and she said she was not going to do chemo and, or, um, or radiation, and they gave her just three months to live. Well, that was my, you know, big aha moment to buy a Rife machine. Long story short, she lived another 13 years. So it... Um, 
eventually, you know, God sent us another cancer patient and another cancer patient. And, and then we really saw the writing on the wall that that's this is the road we were supposed to go down. Interesting. Yeah. You know, when I first reached out to you, I thought we would end up talking about uh, different chemicals that are in plants that could potentially help with cancer. But now you're talking about frequencies, which I'm totally not familiar with at all. Tell me a little bit more about that. What does that mean, a frequency and frequency treatments? So frequency treatment is uh, is what rife technology is. So we use chemicals in plants. That's when we're using herbology and using different nutraceuticals, you're really uh, addressing chemistry, body chemistry. So if you give a person turmeric, you're using turmeric for a certain reason to change the chemistry of the milieu, wherever that cancer is, try to decrease inflammation. Turmeric has anti-cancer properties in itself. Um, and we, we do that as well, but we also use Rife technology. So Rife was named after Royal Raymond Rife. And he theorized back in the twenties and thirties that, that if you could hit a cancer cell at its own frequency, you could effectively have positive effects for that patient. So he believed if you hit a cancer cell at its own frequency, you'd cause cell lysis, which is a pathological death of the cell. Um, he didn't have any proof of that, but he had success with cancer patients. So um, that's what he believed, how he believed his success, which measured that the, the that hitting it with its own frequency using a light frequency, he could cause cell death. I don't personally believe that hitting the cancer cell with its own frequency is causing cell lysis. We don't really see evidence of that, but I do believe that if you hit a cancer cell with its own frequency, you at least get the immune system to look at it again. So when we talk about frequencies, um, um, this was this was all new information um, in the early 1900s. So we were moving from Newtonian physics that the smallest particle is electrons, neutrons, and protons to quantum physics that there was even smaller particles that are simply, um, uh, it's, it's just energy that's vibrating at a specific frequency. And everything... Um, uh, that we know as matter today down to its smallest particle is simply energy that's vibrating at a frequency. So if you could hit that thing at its own frequency, you will do, you can do different things to it. You could do damaging things to that, but you're certainly going to cause it to vibrate. Um, you can see that evidence in like you've seen, um, Ella Fitzgerald sing a note and the and the um, crystal goblet shatters. Well, when she hits the frequency of crystal, crystal has a frequency that some people can hit with uh, with a sound wave if they have that voice that could hit that note, that frequency. Well, she didn't make when, when that happens, it doesn't make a change to the molecular structure of crystal, but simply when crystal is blown into a goblet and you hit it with its own frequency, you cause those molecules to vibrate and then they don't hold that structure of that goblet anymore and it shatters. Um, but if you looked at it under an electron microscope, it's still crystal molecules that just because they vibrated when, 
when they were resonated with their own frequency, they couldn't hold the structure that it was blown into as a goblet any longer. So you didn't actually change the crystal itself. It's still molecularly crystal, but you caused it to vibrate. So when you hit anything with its own frequency, you're going to at least cause it to vibrate. And I believe that there's literally dozens of theories on how rife technology affects cancer cells and healthy cells and such. Um, and there's books written on that by people that are much smarter than I am. So I'm just a clinician. So my belief in seeing how rife technology works with cancer and other diseases is that it, it, the very least, it causes it to vibrate. And one of the problems that we see when you're trying to fight cancer, cancer is your own cells. So your immune system is not going to be attracted to kill it because it is your own cells. What cancer is, is something got inside of one cell, causing it to go into rapid replication. And now you have cells that are rapidly replicating, um, but they're still self cells. So breast cancer is made up of breast tissue cells. So your immune system is not supposed to attack and destroy self tissue. Um, and that's one of the reasons why your immune system doesn't kill cancer all the time is because it recognizes it as self tissue and that it doesn't destroy it. So if you can hit the cancer at its own frequency, cause it to vibrate, it looks differently. Your immune system is going to at least take a second or third or fourth look at it. And you can effectively, if that person has a healthy enough immune system, be able to get the immune system to start attacking it and destroying it. So that's, that's at least one theory on how rife works or why rife works. Um, and I believe it's a big one because we see when people have a seriously diminished immune system for whatever reason, rife tends not to work as well. So we never use rife alone. We also use uh, chemistry. So like you mentioned earlier, we use different nutraceuticals to help stimulate an immune response as well. So if you could couple that with um, the rife and with diet and attitude changes and prayer and things, we believe you're going to have the best results. Interesting. So you talked, I mean, you know, now that the more you talked about it, I think I did hear this therapy mentioned in a book called The Truth About Cancer, which I read recently, and, and I kind of dismissed it because I thought, oh, that sounds kind of crazy. But as you're talking, it's coming back to me a little bit. And what do you what does it mean when you say hit the cancer with its own frequency? How do you know what frequency something is at? That's that can be difficult. So different um different cancers, there are some known frequencies for different cancers. So um th that has been mapped out. Um Matter of fact, when when Rife Technology was burgeoning and Royal Rife was using his technology and it was becoming more popular, uh, he was not a clinician. He was a scientist. But clinicians did send their difficult patients to them to get to him to get treated. People, clinicians that knew about him, um, patients that they weren't having success with, they would send them to Rife. The University of Southern California School of Medicine sent some terminal cancer patients to Rife, and he had um, some documented success with those patients. Um, but that was right at the time of history that pharmaceuticals were really taking over. 
and taking over the treatment, certainly taking over treatment modality in in the realm of cancer treatment. Um, in the early 1950s, the American Medical Association went on a rampage to destroy any practitioner that was using herbology or any other therapy other than pharmaceuticals. And this is very well documented in history. And they shut down Hoxie Clinics and they shut down Max Gerson and they shut down Royal Rife as well. And then his technology was claimed and tried to utilize um, in during the Cold War and by the Defense Department. And the Defense Department actually mapped out quantum phys- physics frequencies of a lot of diseases. And that is open um, knowledge now. A person could Google rife frequencies for diseases and you could come up with a document um, that is many pages long with different frequencies that um, can affect different diseases. Um, now, some... Okay common misconceptions that I like to clarify when we talk about Rife is there's a lot of um, um, maybe misinformation about Rife technology that's out there. Uh, Some people will say, I just need the frequency for prostate cancer so I could use a Rife machine and it could destroy my prostate cancer. Well, it just doesn't work that way. And there isn't just one frequency for prostate cancer and one frequency for breast cancer. There's literally hundreds of frequencies that can effectively affect a cancer, a growing cancer. So you need to have a a type of machine that you can program in those hundreds of different frequencies that can help your body attack that cancer. And Rife technology is not a magic um, wand or a magic um, bullet that's going to destroy cancer. It's not something that um, the AMA shut down because it had 100% efficacy and they wanted to make all their money in pharmaceuticals and so they didn't want Rife to be used. There's some truth to that. They didn't want anything else to be used but pharmaceuticals. That's why, for the sakes, Max Gerson was simply using diet um, and very few nutritional things at that time. There wasn't a lot known about supplements at that time. There wasn't a lot available on the market. He was mainly using juicing and diet and coffee enemas and detoxification. They shut him down. So yes, there was a lot of greed involved, but there is a misconception out there, I think, in the public, thinking that um, there is a, um, a secret cancer cure that the the pharmaceuticals um, um, is hiding and doesn't want you to know about. <clears throat> well, if there is a perfect secret cancer cure that the pharmaceutical companies are hiding, doesn't want us to know about. I don't know about it either. So um, it's not known. It doesn't. Nobody knows what that is. Certainly, um, a nutritional approach and using herbs and using nutraceuticals and using rife. Um, is very effective, but it is not a magic wand and it is not going to cure everybody. Now, in that same breath, we've seen miracles in our office where people who were given just weeks to live, lived, you know, three, four, eight more years. Um, but that does not always happen. So, uh, and it's very, it's almost impossible to do a study like, okay, um, whether, you know, 
chemotherapy is the right way to go or a natural approach is the right way to go. I mean, literally, you could have 10 people that do chemotherapy um, for their colon cancer. Five of them have success and live, you know, for 10 years and five of them, you know, don't have success and die. But you could say the same thing with natural care, too. Certainly, we don't have, you know, these, um, you know, 100% success stories by any stretch of the imagination. It just isn't. It just isn't there. So, um, you know, you just you try to give people the best quality of life throughout their care um, and they have to weigh that out. There's times that chemotherapy is the right thing to do. There's certainly times surgery is the right thing to do. Certainly times radiation is the right thing to do. But it doesn't mean that that's the only thing to do for a person. That's that's my argument with the practice of medicine and pharmacology is that they don't give people other options. And especially, it, it makes me even more frustrated with cancers that have such a poor success rate by their own admission. Let's say you have pancreatic cancer with a 7% five-year success rate. Goodness sakes, why are you still doing Harsh, harsh chemo on pancreatic cancer when you have a 7% five-year success rate. Okay, by any stretch of the imagination, that that sucks. I hate to say that, That's you know, but it's just, it's horrible. Um, why aren't you telling people to, hey, why don't you try diet? Why don't you try, you know, um, different nutraceuticals? Maybe we couple them together and we'd, we'd get a better success rate. Um uh, it's it's to me that's to me that that is malpractice. That's not just sad anymore, um, but that is criminal. When you are talking people out of doing other things that could improve their odds or at least improve um, their health, so that they have less side effects doing the chemotherapy that you're advocating. But no, you we, we all all the time we hear oncologists that tell patients, oh, don't do anything else while we're doing chemotherapy. We don't want anything to interrupt the success of our chemotherapy. Let's look at your success rate of chemotherapy. It's horrible for certain types of cancers. And then you're telling people not to try to mitigate the side effects of of the chemotherapy, except by using your anti-nausea drugs and some uh, steroids to help decrease inflammation. That That, to me, is not being a doctor anymore. You're not really caring for the patient anymore, thinking of their best um, in, in the circumstances. You're just like following a protocol that a pharmaceutical company has written. Um, and uh, it's, that's, it's really sad. Yeah. Yeah, man. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, as I've been researching more of trying to, expand into some alternative treatments to see what else is out there before, besides just the conventional treatments. I, I did come across some of the therapies you mentioned, like the Hoxie therapy. I'm reading his autobiography, and it's just, if, if there's any truth to this autobiography, it's incredible because the amount of pushback that he got from mainstream and the federal government just trying to close the doors on his 17 clinics that... Uh, by many accounts, we're having some success with his herbal treatments and tonics and things like that. I mean, it, it reminds me of some of the stuff that's going that's been going on with COVID in the past two years, where people want to try alternative treatments, but our our government is just so opposed to 
people having the autonomy to try things for themselves and see what they want to use. It's almost like a, uh, you used to have the theocratic state where you could only practice one religion. Now we have the pharmaceutical state and, and you have to practice the, the dogmatic pharmaceutical religion that they, that they deem appropriate. I don't know. Does, well, does, uh, you said it best. Does it I seem think like it really does get, it, it really, it's, it is a religious thing almost because it is literally you're following the pharmaceutical gods um, that are out there in nowhere land and you're following the protocol. I, I had a patient once, this is kind of a funny story. And if the patient listens to this, I hope I don't botch the story too bad. But this person um, was, uh, came to us, was using a rife at home and she, she came back for another visit. She was actually um, multiple states away, but she came back for another visit about six months later. And she goes, oh, you're going to love this story. Uh, we were having our kitchen redone, and I had my rife out in the living room, and, it, and you could see the kitchen um, from where I was at. And the guy, the carpenter who was fixing my kitchen goes, is that a rife machine? And my patient said, oh, my gosh, I've never known anybody who knew what a rife machine looks like. Yeah, how did, how did you know? She was, and the guy said, well, I'm a medical doctor. And she goes, you're a medical doctor and you're fixing my kitchen, you know? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I've been a medical doctor for, I don't know, a dozen years or something, but I quit. When I was going through medical school, my dad was a carpenter and I was working with him as a carpenter. And he taught me the trade, but I always wanted to be a doctor. But I quit a couple of years ago. I just couldn't take it anymore. And she said, well, what happened? And he said, well... We we used to have these in services by pharmaceutical reps, and we used to get um, scolded by the reps. And the head of our our um, medical department would come in, and they would yell at us doctors because they had it down to a science that if you took Lipitor, let's say, um, for decreasing your cholesterol. They had it down to a science that they knew 67% of the patients on Lipitor would have this side effect. So therefore, you need to prescribe this drug. And we know that 22% will have this side effect, so you should prescribe this drug. So we used to get yelled at because we don't have 67% of our patients who are prescribed Lipitor on that second drug, and we don't have nearly the 22% on the third drug. So we would get yelled at. It's like, I goes, this isn't the practice of medicine anymore. They just want me to be a pharmaceutical technician. And I just couldn't do this anymore. I just said, forget it. I'll go back to carpentry. Um, and I respect that person. I never met that doctor, but I so much respect a person that will stand up for what's right. Instead of being a pawn um, or, you know, just, you know, a manipulate, manipulated individual in this religion of pharmacology um, that is known as the practice of medicine. I mean, people think that doctors have autonomy to make decisions. We found out during COVID that that's not true. They have to prescribe remdesivir that literally shuts down people's kidneys and kills them. And then we call it a COVID death. That's a whole other story and how they've just literally murdered people in the hospital. And now you got doctors and nurses who are praised as, as, um, you know, uh, the, you know, the saints who work here and, you know, at the hospitals that were literally killing people because they were doing what pharmaceutical told them to do. And yet 
it's that it's just it's just criminal. I mean, hopefully someday we live as uh, people long enough to to look back at this time in history and shake our heads at the criminality that has been going on. Um, personally, I don't have a lot of hope that that's going to take place. And but it's uh, we do see that in the practice of, of medicine with with uh, oncology for sure. And I'm not saying that there's not great doctors out there who really care for their patients and great nurses who really love their patients. They are, um, they're out there and great oncologists who really love their patients. And we've run into some, um, but when, when oncologists and doctors and nurses refuse to look at other possibilities um, that could help their patients to be, they're not being a doctor anymore. And, at very least shame on them for not really caring enough for their patient to try to do what's in their best interest instead of instead of just um all you read is what the pharmaceutical company gave you in their in their uh their lecture this week um instead of looking at any other studies that are out there it's just uh it's very sad yeah yeah i know some there's some critics like uh uh, Robin Feldman and uh, Per Byland uh, or Per Byland, who argue that a lot of the reason for the reason that they that the pharmaceutical model is pushed so much is because that's the model that can make the most money because of patents, and that if patents didn't if the government didn't hand out patents, which gives you uh, a government approved monopoly on a market there would be more interest in looking at other methods of treatment uh, that involve non-patentable things like uh, herbs and um, vitamins and things like that. I, I know with Hoxie, at least from his book, he saw his therapy as a type of chemotherapy. He thought that the medicine that was in the herbs that he was giving was actually very strong and that it was um, in some way helping to heal helping the body's own natural mechanism to heal itself. You know, one thing I've read from a lot, reading a lot of these natural books on cancer is that there's this idea that the body can fight off cancer on its own. If you give it the right uh, nutrients, the appropriate stimulation to build up a strong immune system. Do you think there's truth to that? Well, there's obvious truth to that because you probably have cancer right now. and Every single listener does as well. You're, you're, um, the cells that you have are, you have mutated cells, you have cells that are in rapid replication and your body is killing them and knocking them down. Then hopefully you'll never get a diagnosis of cancer. So your body is doing that. So it's, if you give your body the, uh, you know, the best ability to fight off cancer, the, you have the best chance of winning that battle. Um, so that's constantly taking place. And Hoxie's thought that he was using um, herbs as a chemotherapy. Maybe we wouldn't call it a chemotherapy today in our terminology because we are so programmed to think that chemotherapy is um, the poison that it is that we describe it as as a pharmaceutical agent. Um, but truly, natural care is chemotherapy. It is changing the body's chemistry. That's what it is. That's what what nutraceuticals do as well. So um, uh, in that sense, in that definition of the word, it is a chemotherapy for sure. Mm -hmm. So what happens when someone comes to your clinic? Uh, 
is it is it totally individualized? Do you have uh, you know a step program that uh, most people follow, or what happens when someone walks in your door? But we don't have as many people walking through our door anymore physically. Um, that's one of the things that COVID has changed for us. We always had a distance program. We always saw people at a, a distance meeting over the phone, over Skype at one time, now over Zoom. Um, and because of the nature of our practice, we see people from literally all over the world. So um, uh, that sense of distance care is um, how we practice. But um, to be specific, um, we believe everybody's unique. So you could have a twin brother and both of you have prostate cancer. In, in our mind, it, it doesn't make any difference. You're both going to be treated uniquely. So we get speci- we do specific testing in our office and you and your twin brother could have a completely different protocol. So mm-hmm. um, it is that's how we work. Now, not everybody that communicates to us or downloads our books um, because all my books I have is a free download on our website. We can't see everybody and not everybody can afford to come to us. And truthfully, not everybody needs to come to us. A lot of people are very good at self care. So that's why I, you know, I believe that um, as I learn something, my responsibility is to try to then um, convert that into a language that that most people can understand that they could take that information and then maybe they can utilize that information without needing me. Um, we're not trying to create an um, uh, unhealthy dependency on us. We're trying to educate people so that they can self-care and they can self-doctor as much as they can. If they need us and we they want to utilize us, then we act as their coach and we test them and we get as specific as possible with everything that we do. Um, but we give away all our information as far as all our knowledge and our books and our videos and everything so that people can make choices to take care of themselves if they, if they can do that as well. Um, but everybody is unique and I think you need to treat yourself as unique. Um, I try to give as many clues in our books of different supplements that can be good for different cancers. Um, but um, you're, uh, if you don't have a way to test that, then you're going to have to either pray about it or meditate on it or however you're going to come up with your decision of what protocol to use because there's a lot of different protocols out there. So. Mm. so do you see the types of therapy that you provide as adjuncts to conventional therapy for cancers or have you ever had anyone who's been in complete remission from say a tumor that was uh, palpable? Uh, Has it ever gone away just with the type of therapy that you provide or do you need to combine conventional and this alternative way of looking at it? So on our, when we talk about um, cancer care on our website, we have to be very careful with our, how we, how we, handle our language because from a legal medical legal standpoint, the only people in this country that can treat cancer is an oncologist. So we don't treat cancer. And in, you know, it's not, we're not just saying that to protect ourselves in truth. We don't, we're not treating cancer anyhow. We're treating a person. So um, the cancer is 
cells that are gone awry and are in a rapid state of replication. So you got this growing cell mass because of something. So if you could do your best to treat them because of something, then you could help that person overcome this and help that person's immune system be able to kill this and for that cancer to stop growing. Now, you may mention that, can you make a cancer disappear? Like, can you make that mass go away? That's really not the, that's really not what we're trying to do. And I don't, and we try to tell patients that's not what you really need to happen. You just need the cells to stop replicating. You don't need the immune system or your lymph system to clear it away. That's not even necessary. We just need to stop, to get it to stop replicating. So if that mass stays in your breast as uh, you know, a grape-sized mass for the next 30 years, you just got to be okay with that. Um, if it stays a grape-sized mass for the next, you know, six months to a year, it's not replicating anymore. You know, it's staying that same size. If it could, if each one of those cells continued to replicate at that same rate, it would be, you know, would be growing exponent, ex, exponentially larger over time. Um, and if it stops or it starts to uh, decrease that rate of replication, that mass is going to stay the same size or grow slower and slower and slower. That's really what we want. That's really what the goal is. It's not really to make it go away. So if you can get people to understand that, they go, okay, now I get that. I Now I understand that. To get back to your original question, yes, we have patients that come to us that don't want to do any standards of care. They, they just don't. Um, Usually those are patients that maybe really grew up very alternative minded um, or their patients. And what we've experienced, a lot of patients that have had uh, family members with really bad experiences going standards of care. So they have they have very adverse taste in their mouth about doing any chemotherapy, radiation or surgery because they saw their mom had breast cancer, too. And, you know, she, she was you know, dead in a year. Matter of fact, my first cancer patient ever back in the late 90s, that was her comment. She said she nursed her friend through chemo and she died a horrible death. And she said, I'm not going that route. So there's just no way I'm going that route. She just had that in her mind. Um, well, praise God, she did it. She lived another 13 years. So, um, and again, I don't take the credit. Do I think the rife helped her? Absolutely. Do I think the nutrition helped her? For sure. But her body did it. So her body gets the credit. She gets the credit, not me. Um, but it's so we've had patients not go any uh, standards of care and do fantastic. We've had patients that um, a, a lot of our patients have failed standards of care. That's why they're seeking us out. So um, especially in years gone by, people didn't think about an alternative approach when they heard you have cancer. You know, they only thought about an alternative approach when they heard you have cancer. We're going to do this, this and this. They go through that course of action. And then the doctor says, well, um, there's nothing else we can do. It's time to call hospice and get your affairs in order. Then they call us. So still, that's the largest percentage of our patients. But we are getting more people that are getting their eyes open to um, the truth about the pharmaceutical industry and that maybe they're not given always other options and they're they're slowing down 
when they hear those words, you have cancer, and they're starting to do some research, and they're starting to say, well, maybe there's another way, um, um, and maybe I could combine that other way with um, a percentage of standards of care that I'm comfortable with. Maybe I'm not comfortable with, you know, doing a lumpectomy and then radiation and then uh, chemotherapy. Maybe I'm only comfortable with doing a lumpectomy and I'll save radiation and chemotherapy for down the road if I need it. I'll keep it in my back pocket. So I just want to combine standards of care to a certain degree and add alternative care um, that I'm comfortable with. And I think that's really when you have really good results. And so people are trying to to merge wisdom in their decision-making process and not surrendering all their personal power to their oncologist um, because they're so scared. So um, I think the more educated people are, the less scared of, of serious diseases you are, and then you have the ability to make uh, a wiser decision. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are there common things that you would advise healthy people to do to try to prevent cancer? Um, there's definitely things that you can do to prevent cancer when you look at what some of the most common causes of cancer. So some of the most common causes of cancer are environmental toxins. So pesticides and herbicides and chemicals such as that, you can't avoid completely, even if you're going to eat all organic. You still eat out, even if you're eating at organic restaurants. Um, you're, you still have cross-contamination of pesticides and herbicides and chemicals that you just can't get away from. Your you might not spray your yard with Roundup, but your neighbor does. Um, and, you know, residues are in our drinking water. And we are so poisoned in this world because of environmental toxins that even if you lived your life perfectly, you're still exposed to those things. But it is cumulative. These things are cumulative. So the more you can do to help, you know, clean up your diet, the better off you're going to be. Um, the more you could do to help support detoxification pathways, the better off you're going to be. I just finished one of my latest books is The Seven Phases of Detoxification, and I recommend everybody read it. It's a free download on our website, like all our books are. Um, that explains, you know, just things that you could do, um, the average person could do, even if you don't have a lot of money, just to support your detox pathways, because you're, you're going to be toxified, if that's a term. You're going to be exposed to poisons. Um, you need to support your liver and support your organs of detoxification to get this stuff out as fast as possible. And that's probably going to be your best preventative thing to do. Okay. There's other things with hormonal-driven cancers that, that especially women should be aware of, uh, things that are um, estrogen disruptors like plastics, and things to um, eliminate. And then just other obvious environmental things that you like, clean up your house, stop using um, Lysol spray, stop using, you know, things, chemicals in your house, um, your cleaning products, your laundry detergent. Um, um, you, you can do things without going completely crunchy crazy, you know, and, and just changing some buying habits that, okay, instead of buying, 
Tide, I'm going to buy, you know, a more organic laundry detergent, you know, just still have to reach for something on the shelf, just make some more educated decisions and you're going to, you could help yourself and your children in in a great way. Okay. What about, you know, you mentioned organic, but I, I'm also thinking about certain foods like soy may have certain estrogens in them that could potentially be bad. Are there, even though you get organic soy, would that still be bad? Are there are there pitfalls like that that we need to watch out for? Yep. So even organic soy, that's going to be an estrogen disruptor because it's a phytoestrogen. So especially women with breast cancers that are going to be more prone to hormonally driven cancers have to be aware of that. So they're, they need to be aware of that whole classification um, as well. And then there's some different nutritional things that you could take. So every woman probably should be on uh, a product that will help pull out bad estrogens. Um, and there's products like DIM and I3C and um, Chrysin and um, different um uh, herbal bark products that will help pull out um, these bad estrogens that can be can help lead to cancer. So, because no matter what you do, you're not going to eat soy anymore. You're not going to drink soy milk anymore. Good idea, um, but you're still exposed to a lot of estrogen disruptors in our environment um, that that you just can't get away from. Yeah. One thing I've been hearing a lot about uh, through research and reading is um, trying to do things in your body that will upregulate things like autophagy and apoptosis, basically recycling of the cells um, so that they're kind of your body's cleaning out old cells, getting rid of cells that aren't functioning optimally. And things like fastening could potentially be helpful with that. Do you ever you utilize fasting or recommend it for healthy people? Yeah. And I talk of that um, a lot about fasting in my cancer book, Stop Fighting Cancer. And I talk about it a lot in this new book, um, uh, The Seven Phases of Detoxification, because you're exactly right. Fasting is a great way to upregulate autophagy and to just to help your take pressure off of your liver and your kidneys. So um, your liver and your kidneys can get full and um, and then can't do their job in phase one, phase two detoxification of the liver. So if you could take pressure off it, I mean, the truth is in this country, we all eat way too many calories. Um, and, and I know fasting is scary for a lot of people because, oh my goodness, I'll starve to death. But you can you can start small by practicing time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. So you're just like, okay, maybe we're going to start with one day a week, maybe on Mondays. I'm not going to eat till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm going to skip breakfast and lunch and not eat till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, I could do that. And then maybe next Monday you're going to eat not eat till 4. So time-restricted eating is... You're, you're restricting your eating window to only X amount of hours per day. Maybe it's going to be eight hours a day that you're eating to begin with, but you hopefully want to get down to where maybe you're only eating four hours a day. And it's and that would it certainly wouldn't be every day of the week. Maybe you do it one day of the week. Then you do it maybe two days of the week. Then maybe you'd get to be doing it three days of the week. And 
And that's all. That that alone could be extremely healthy for a person. It just gives their their body a rest, their detoxification pathways a rest, kind of gives them a chance to get caught up. Um, it uh, helps your body start metabolizing wastes better. It helps your lymph system get uh, caught up and, and getting rid of wastes in the extracellular spaces. It just can take a lot of pressure off of your body. It can really help um, with blood sugar balances and things. It's It can be just amazing. So that's probably one of the best ways to start really cleaning out is to do that um, uh, and do that on a regular basis. There's different apps you can put on your phone and different things. I have one on my phone, a fasting app that I just said, okay, tomorrow I finished eating today at eight. I hit fasting on that. And that just gives me incentive to, I'm not going to eat till I get home tomorrow at uh, five o'clock or six o'clock. Well, then I just fasted for, you know, 22 hours. That's great. You know, so um, that kind of motivation could be beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Since I learned more about fasting, um, I tried it and I, and I kind of thought to myself that I would do it once a month. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I did a 24 hour fast. Um, but I noticed as I, I, w- I was going to try to go for 48 hours, but I noticed as I was getting closer to bedtime that I was finding it really hard to sleep while still being hungry. Do you, for anyone who wants to try more than 24 hours, do you have any advice for fasting during the time when you, when you're sleeping and not being hungry and thinking about food while you're going to bed? Yeah. So, you know, people, you know, I talk to people that all the time that have fasted, you know, for many days and such, it's not always beneficial. So you've got to remember just like, um, vitamin C, you know, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing too, or even water or anything. So, um, we don't, for our cancer patients, we do not recommend that they fast over 24 hours because it can have some possible negative effects for cancer. It increases IGF one levels and such, which you don't necessarily want with cancer. Now that can be very beneficial for people without cancer, but also you look like a pretty thin guy. Um, you don't want to be fasting more than 24 hours if you don't really have a lot of weight to play with to lose um, because uh, too much autophagy can be damaging to your cells too. So everything, every process in your body is a balance. So um, everybody thinks, oh, I got to get on antioxidants, right? Well, we probably all have a deficiency in antioxidants, but you need oxidative pathways too to destroy pathogens. So um, everything is a balance. You know, oxidation isn't just all a bad guy. You know, it's that you you need that balance between those things. So you have to be careful of that. So the biggest thing I say with fasting with people is you start slow and you work up. Um, if you, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I got to do fasting. If you just jump into a 24-hour fast, that could be harmful to your body too. We, You do have to check your blood sugars and you do, if you're going to do any kind of fasting of any length of time, you, you really want to get some supervision because you don't want to go into a state of hypoglycemia and that could be an issue too, especially if you have blood sugar handling issues. So um, doing it slowly, working up to something is, is an important thing. Um, uh, there's also a, a product out there called Fasting Mimicking Diet that is extremely 
um, safe to use so people don't have any ill effects of fasting, doing what's called the fasting mimicking diet. That was produced by uh, a PhD researcher out of, um, I think he was USC School of Medicine or something like that. But uh, there's a book out on fasting mimicking diet, but that's a product that you'd buy, you'd follow for five days and you... So you're not actually in a true fast, but you're in a low caloric intake. So your body is mimicking a fast and you can get most of the benefits from a fast um, without any really of the negative side effects that you could get with blood sugar issues with the fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it, I I, th I like what you said there about that there's like an optimal level for everything, because I think it's that way with a lot of nutrients. You know, it's kind of they kind of follow like a U-shaped curve where you're getting a lot of benefit at first, say, if you start taking some vitamins that you were deficient in. But if you take too much, then it starts to, the benefit declines and it can eventually be negative if, if you take too much. I know one thing I think about that is there's a lot of interest in the ketogenic diet as it relates to cancer. And um, one thing I, I was concerned about with that um, is that if you're not eating carbs, well, your body uses carbs to produce things like reactive oxygen species, which help destroy pathogens and things like that. And it also uses carbs to create uh, mucus in your mucous membranes, which helps defend against pathogens. So I think everything has to be individualized and kind of optimized for each person, like you were saying earlier as well. Yeah, we totally agree. I know there's some books out there that say every cancer patient should be on a ketogenic diet. I wholeheartedly disagree with that. Um, that is, I know just as a, somebody who's practicing physician, taking care of people with cancer for more than 20 years, that is just totally not true. Yeah, it makes good reading and it was written by a scientist, but not by a physician who actually treats cancer patients. Um, there are some cancers that are fed directly through glycolysis, and that is their main fuel source. And maybe a keto-like diet or a full ketogenic diet could be very beneficial. But there's other cancers that are fed, um, and cancers can change their fuel source. So even if they're fed through glycolysis and you go on a keto-like diet, two months later it changes its fuel source to uh, mainly an amino acid fuel source, and now you're basically feeding the cancer. So um, it has to be individualized. You cannot just go, well, this is what uh, I read in this book, so this is what I'm going to follow. Um, um, that might not be right for you. It could be, but it might not be. It might be the wrong diet for you. So you, you do want to eat, at least experiment in that um, if you don't have somebody to test for that. But um, there's ways to kind of test your body through different diets as well. Yeah. Are there any main nutrients? I know you talked a lot about the frequency therapy, but uh, are there any nutrients in general that people should be taking if they have cancer? Um, I know like Linus Pauling, he, he was big into vitamin C and uh, reading his book, he actually has a lot of studies to back up a lot of the things that he says. But is there anything in particular that comes to mind that people in general should be taking if they get a diagnosis with cancer? Well, I definitely have my favorites. So uh, if anybody's read any of my stuff, mushrooms are my favorite. Polysaccharides are my favorite, one of my favorites. Um, and you get polysaccharides um, really 
cancer-killing polysaccharides, immune-boosting polysaccharides from the mushroom family and from the aloe family. Um, so those have helped a lot of our patients. Um, but there's different other herbs too, like the the herbs that are in Hoxie that, that you mentioned earlier, that, which are very similar to the herbs that are in Essiac. Um, those products can be very beneficial for cancer patients. Um, and uh, so those are going to be good immune regulating, immune stimulating um, to get your, to wake up your immune system, to help be able to fight cancer. Um, and then really working on detoxification pathways uh, and calming your sympathetic nervous system and stimulating your parasympathetic nervous system. Those are all great tools if you're in, a, you know, if you hear that you've got a cancer diagnosis. Okay. Okay. Wow. A, a lot to think about there. What about, um, I've heard mistletoe mentioned a lot in natural therapies. Do you use that? We don't use that because it's more of an invasive uh, therapy, and we have to be careful just with our scope of practice. But mistletoe is uh, an immune stimulation um, because it just fires up the immune system, uh, kind of like it's uh, almost like a toxin. So I don't know if you've heard of Coley's toxins before, that Dr. Coley um, created a mixture of toxins, which he'd inject into a person, which would stimulate this immune reaction, which there wasn't enough of any specific bacteria that would cause um, a serious illness of, from that a bacterial infection, but it was enough to, to cause an immune stimulation. Um, uh, similar to bee sting therapy, you know, you cause enough of an uh, immune stimulation that it fires an immune response by your body. Um, that's kind of what mis how mistletoe works. So mistletoe injections cause typically done in the belly um, and they're titrated up over time, cause a redness and an, an inflammatory reaction at the site of it, of uh, of injection. You can do mistletoe IVs as well, causes this inflammatory response. Still, that person needs to, to have a healthy enough immune response. So using things like um, mushrooms and other immune stimulation like vitamin C and different things, things like that will help build that up as well. Um, but mistletoe could be a, a good therapy for cancer as well. Yes. Are there any things that people who are doing conventional treatments like chemotherapy should avoid as far as natural products go? Because, I mean, there are natural products that are very potent and powerful. It, does anything come to mind? Well, you have to understand the chemistry of chemotherapy. So chemotherapy is an oxidizing agent. Um, so technically, chemotherapy is a poison. But hopefully you're dosing it in a such a way that you're not going to kill the patient, that it will be uh, taken up by the cancer because the cancer is more highly metabolic. So you could think of it as the cancer is hungrier than other cells. So if you're going to poison the body, the hungrier cells are going to gobble up that poison first, and they're going to be first to die. Um, that's why people with chemotherapy um, have death to other cells in their body that are also 
naturally highly metabolic. So uh, the cancer is more highly metabolic, meaning it's hungrier, but so are your hair follicles. They reproduce more rapidly. That's why your hair grows in a month and you have to get your hair cut. Um, so there, it's it's highly metabolic. Your hair follicles are. So is your immune system. Your immune system, those cells reproduce much more rapidly than a, than a normal cell does. So your immune system is negatively affected by the chemotherapy. That's why people that are doing chemotherapy have to get a white blood cell CBC test to make sure that their white blood cell count is not too low when you give the person chemotherapy and you kill them. Um, but if it's too low, then they give you a different shot that will boost up your white blood cells so they can give you the chemotherapy tomorrow, hopefully. Um, so when you do chemotherapy, it is a poison. It's an oxidizing agent. And I don't say that to degrade chemotherapy. It just is. Um, and it will kill your hair follicles. It will kill your immune system. But hopefully it will be taken up more readily by the cancer than by healthy cells so that it will kill the cancer before it will kill your healthy cells. Really, chemotherapy does its work within the first 48 hours on the cancer cells, and then you want to try to get rid of it. So knowing that it's an oxidizing agent, really, to when we suggest to our patients, if they're getting chemotherapy infusions, we tell them, don't take any antioxidants or anything that's a real strong antioxidant during that 48-hour window. So I'm going in for an infusion of chemotherapy at 9 o'clock Monday morning. I'm done at noon. So I leave the clinic goodbye at noon. From noon on Monday till noon on Wednesday, don't take any strong antioxidants. So you're not going to take your vitamin C. You're not going to take your alpha-lopaic acid. You'll probably lay off your curcumin. You're also not going to want to try to detoxify this too quickly for those 48 hours. I want it to stay in my system. So you're not going to be doing coffee enemas at that time. You're not going to be doing milk thistle and dandelion root that's going to help you detoxify. Now, there's different schools of thought. So there's other alternative practitioners say, fool you on that. We need to get this out of your body. But in my mind, it's like, okay, if you're going to take the chemotherapy, if you're choosing to do that, we want it to work. So I say lay off of that for 48 hours. Now your oncologist is going to say, don't take anything. We're going to do chemotherapy. Don't you dare take anything throughout this whole course of treatment. Six months from now, you can do whatever you want. When we're all done and we have you cured. I say that is absolutely criminal to think that way. So, um, you know, yeah, if you if you could show me that your chemotherapy has 100% efficacy on your patients and they're all going to be cured in six months, then by all means, go for it. Then we'll work on detoxifying their body in six months. But you can't because it's not true. And we can look up your five-year survival rate on your cancer. And if it's anything less than 100%, then you better be doing some other things too to help improve your odds. But I will go, okay, we can think about this objectively and not be dogmatically positioned as an alternative practitioner too. And if we do want the chemotherapy to work, um, it's, let's lay off the antioxidants for the time that the chemotherapy is really doing its best effect on the cancer. Then after that, let's get it out of your body so it doesn't destroy your healthy cells. And let's support your cells and your healthy cells and your immune system to get that built back up. Um, 
that's going to be your best effect. And, and there's other things that you can do if you're going to do chemotherapy that um, aren't even alternative. Just by fasting, doing a 24-hour fast prior to chemotherapy infusions, you're going to greatly improve your odds of the chemotherapy working and having less ill effects in the chemotherapy. Think of that. If you can put a like into a cartoon, you're basically starving your cancer cells for 24 hours, and they're like super hungry now. Then we're going to give them chemotherapy. They're going to be pushing everything else out of the way. Give me this, give me this, give me this. Um, and you're going to have better results with the chemotherapy. And that's done. Those are medical studies. So um, you can search that. But doing a 24-hour, and some people even say 48-hour fast prior to chemotherapy can even really reduce side effects of chemotherapy and really help the efficacy of the chemotherapy as well. Yeah, I, I came across that study that you mentioned there while I was searching on PubMed, and yeah, they had they had people fast the day before getting chemo, the day of chemo, and then the day after, and they said that they felt better and they it worked better and they had less yeah. side effects, which was really strange. I mean, a three day fast in itself is would seem to be difficult enough, but uh, I, I guess that that's what that study showed. Yeah, it was like, I think if I remember it, it's like 50% decrease in side effects. So yeah. um, you can't argue with that. I mean, then it's like, okay, why aren't the oncologists telling their patients this? It just it just right. blows my mind that they don't read their own journals. Um, and, you know, anybody could do a Google Scholar search on something like curcumin, you know, which is the active form of turmeric, and you'll see literally hundreds of articles saying turmeric's um, uh, efficacy with cancer patients. It's, it's you know, when, when, when a oncologist tells a doctor, uh, tells a patient that you shouldn't be doing any of that nonsense alternative stuff, there's no research behind it. There's, there's way more research behind um, uh, nutritional support for cancer than there is pharmaceutical support for cancer. You look at any research article on a chemotherapy, it's only comparing this chemotherapy with a different chemotherapy. It's never comparing chemotherapy with the person doing nothing, let mm. alone doing an alternative approach. They, that study will never get published because they're afraid of the results, I think. Um, they're only publishing articles um, that are showing, that are comparing one chemotherapy regimen to another chemotherapy regimen. And Okay, that that is to me that's not science. So um, to say that there's no science that backs alternative care, um, you know, you just need to say, can you give me the science that backs your care compared to doing something alternative? Um, and and then I'll believe you. You know, let's throw some some uh, coals on the fire and and let's see. Um, so. You know, do your own research. My biggest, um, my biggest um, uh, comment to patients, my biggest piece of advice to people when they hear they have cancer, is to just slow down. Um, uh, cancer is that um, you know, the, if you are just diagnosed with cancer, it's been growing in your body for a long time, at least years. You have at least a little bit of time um, between 
um, your diagnosis and you going and rushing off and getting a port in so that you can start chemotherapy next week to do some research and to to decide not that chemotherapy is not the right way for you. I'm not saying that, but at least do some research on things that you could couple with that or that you might want to try first. Um, and uh, it, there, there's a lot of hooey out there, but there's a lot of really good information out there. And if you are um, apt enough to dig uh, on Google Scholar and things, you're going to find some good research that backs some natural things. So it, it will do nothing but help you um, improve your odds, even if you decide to do everything that standards of care tells you to do. Yeah, that's, you know, you mentioned there that the, what, what, that they don't, when they do these studies on chemotherapy, they don't compare it to doing nothing or doing an alternative medicine type approach. And as I was reading the alternative medicine type approaches, uh, something that was going through my mind is that what is the natural background rate if a person just does nothing of spontaneous cures of people just getting better, their immune systems, maybe overcoming it on its own or maybe the cancer just stops growing on its own for whatever reason. Are there natural background rates that people will just get better on their own if they do nothing? Well, there's certainly plenty of stories about that. You could read stories of people that just decided, okay, my doctor said I have, you know, stage four lung cancer and I, he wants me to do chemo and this and that stuff. And he still said, I'm going to die in three to six months. Um, I decided, forget it. I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to um, live my life and enjoy life. And they don't do any alternative either. And they live five years. So, hmm. um, you know, for, for people, for, for physicians to claim that they know what's going to happen is the worst thing you could say to a patient. You don't know. Um, and it's the, it's the patients that, that um, literally just said, you know, forget this. I'm going to, go enjoy my life that tend to have better results. And you could point to all sorts of, of, of possibilities with that. They, they overcame that, um, that neurological sympathetic approach of fear. And they just said, okay, well, I'm done with this. I'm going to go a different way. Or, um, you know, they just changed their stress level. They quit their job. They moved back to their homeland or whatever it was. They made some changes that um, shocked their system enough to to be able to fight this disease off. So, you know, throughout the years, I've often th said, wow, you know, I'm not so proud to think that maybe the success that we've had as a clinic is at least in part of from keeping giving people another choice other than just thinking that they have to do chemotherapy. Maybe the success that we've had is just because we've kept people from doing chemotherapy. Um, and, and it really had nothing to do with anything we did. I don't know. You know, how, how do you measure that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe people get better coming to us just because they've been given hope. Well, goodness sakes, isn't that worth it? I remember seeing an article in the AMA journal. This was back in the 90s. And it was saying, this is when the when the medical profession was bashing chiropractic constantly, right? It's just this war against chiropractic. And they, there was a, literally a serious article that said, the only reason chiropractors are getting their patients better is because they love them. 
Hmm. I thought, hmm. <laughs> just thought, well, goodness sakes, what would you rather do? Would you rather go the medical route and um, not get better because they're following science, or would you rather go a, a, an alternative route and get better because the doctor loves you? Yeah, yeah. And they were using that as a as a cut, you know. Right. It's like, oh my gosh! It's like, okay, I guess we'll just keep lobbying people back to health. Um, and you think that's a bad thing? You know, that's not scientific. Well, we have learned in the last couple of years the the fallacy of quote following the science. Um, it's it's nothing more than um, following the propaganda that's trying to lead you down a pathway of destruction. And um, the truth is it's been like that for a long time. So, yes, I am not so proud to think that, oh, we have all the answers um, and, um, and that maybe it's really none of our answers. It's just giving people hope beyond what they've been given that that enables them to live longer, happier lives. Hey, I'm okay with that. So um, I don't need the credit. I, we don't take any credit. And we believe that anything that we do to, to help influence a person to be able to make better decisions and that they can live happier, healthier lives, um, their body gets the credit. God gets the credit. It's not our credit to take anyhow. So, Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Connors, I think that's a good spot for us to end. Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we end the call? Nope. We just want to, um, the biggest thing is we just want to give away our information. So we know that not everybody needs us or needs to use us, but certainly you can download all of my books on, um, on our website for free and get on our newsletter list. Um, and, um, and use our information and share it with other people. And we just want to help people. So, um, use our website. Great. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to come and talk with me. Absolutely, Aaron. Thanks so much.